Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Coming up, cancel culture comes for the so-called Central Park Karen. Anti-Semitism and COVID-19 converge, and why you can't trust a new documentary about one of the most famous pro-life voices in American history. The Andrew Lawton Show starts right now. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another edition of The Andrew Lawton Show, Canada's most irreverent talk show here on True North. Good to have you aboard the program once again. This is going to be a bit of an interesting show, I think, because I'm going to deviate from what we've been talking about for the last few weeks and I'll actually say the last few months of just the pandemic and Canadian politics and all of this. I'm sure we might get to a bit of it. But I want to start off by talking about this story that took place in Central Park on the weekend that is wrong for pretty much as many reasons as it's possible for a story to be wrong. And I don't mean that the reporting is wrong, although actually there is a bit of an issue there. But just everything that is exemplified in this is exactly what we need to be moving away from as a society. And it's a video of Amy Cooper who is, or I suppose was, is a better way of putting it, an investment advisor of some kind for Franklin Templeton, who was out walking her dog, playing with her dog in this part of Central Park in New York City called The Ramble. And I've been to Central Park once. I've never been knowingly anyway to The Ramble, but apparently it's a a well-known area and popular for people that want to walk their dogs, popular for people that want to go bird watching, like Christian Cooper was, who has no relation to Amy Cooper. Now, I'll start with the video itself. This is the video that has gone round the world, the video that's amassed millions of views, the video that has destroyed this woman's life and set a narrative about what happened that isn't entirely accurate. Let's roll that. Will you please stop? Sir, I'm asking you to stop. Please don't come close to me. Sir, I'm asking you to stop recording me. Please don't come close to me. Please take your phone off. Please don't come close to me. I'm taking a picture of calling the cops. Please, please call the cops. Please call the cops. I'm going to tell them there's an African-American man threatening my life. Please tell them whatever you like. Excuse me. I'm sorry, I'm in the ramble, and there's a man, African-American, he has a bicycle helmet. He is recording me and threatening me and my dog. There is an African-American man, I am in Central Park, he is recording me and threatening myself and my dog. <laughs> and my I'm sorry, I can't hear you either. I'm being threatened by a man in the ramble. Please send the cops immediately. I'm in Central Park in the ramble. I don't know. Thank you. So there's a lot that happens in that one minute and 10 second video. We see a woman get increasingly agitated, a woman calling the police, accusing an African-American man of threatening her, a woman who at one point is choking her dog, not intentionally, but choking her dog as she tries to pull back, and a guy who is filming it, who we never actually see, who at the end says thank you. He's gotten what he wanted out of that, which was video evidence of of her uh, doing whatever she did. So from that video, And from that video alone, 
Amy Cooper has been branded a racist. Amy Cooper has been fired from her job. Her company actually tweeted out uh, to this effect. Following our internal review of the incident in Central Park yesterday, we have made the decision to terminate the employee involved effective immediately. We do not tolerate racism of any kind at Franklin Templeton. And that is their pinned tweet and has, you know, something shy of 50,000 retweets at this point. And a narrative has been cemented. This woman has done a, a couple of interviews. She's talked about her life being ruined. She's apologized profusely to Christian Cooper, to Christian Cooper's family. On Twitter, the video went viral, separate from it going viral on Christian's Facebook page, when he, Christian's sister, who's a, a TV writer, had tweeted it out. And she didn't just tweet out the video. She was also retweeting and amplifying all of the responses to the video that were calling for this woman to be fired, calling for her to be held accountable, and all of these other things things. So what's happened here is a very quintessential example of social media shaming, of social media mobbing, where something happens, something's amplified, and what may start as an online thing becomes this thing that has very real-world consequences, not for all of the people involved, but typically for one person involved. And that, in this case, is Amy Cooper, who, despite the fact that she apparently went to the University of Waterloo, she may or may not be Canadian, I don't know. I have no idea anything about her. I've never met her. I've never spoken to her. I know nothing about her except for the one-minute and ten-second video clip that I just played. Yet, at the same time, I still feel for her, for reasons that I, I'm going to go through right now that are partially personal and partially partially about the story itself and I, I want to look at the story itself here because I I don't want to say I got duped because I'm always skeptical whenever I see videos like this but I watched it and I saw what everyone else saw which is that here's a woman that seems to be uh, willing to I don't even know if it's invoking race because of anything other than she's just trying to describe a person and you know he's an african-american man but a, a woman who is calling the police uh, basically trying to get them involved in something uh, because she doesn't like that she was told to put a leash on her dog and that was apparently how this started christian cooper was bird watching her dog was supposed to be leashed he said leash it and she didn't want to and that's that but then i saw his own facebook page where he actually admits to threatening her dog. And this part is not in any of the reporting I've seen, except for one story in the Daily Mail. But th this is his own admission. This is a screenshot from his Facebook page. The post is still up at the time that I'm recording this. And I'm looking at the original right now. And he includes a transcript, roughly, of what happened before he started rolling. And he says, ma'am, dogs in the ramble have to be on the leash at all times. The sign is right there. Uh, she says no. They go back and forth for a bit. And then he says, by his own admission, look, if you're going to do what you want, I'm going to do what I want, but you're not going to like it. Her, what's that? Me, to the dog, come here, puppy. Her, he won't come to you. Me, we'll see about that. And then he says, I pull out the dog treats I carry for just for some intransigence. So there's a, or such intransigence. There's a bit of a typo there. I didn't even get the chance to toss any treats to the pooch before Karen scrambled to grab the dog. Her, don't you touch my dog. That's when I started video recording. And then her inner Karen, as she's called, Central Park Karen, fully emerged and he says took a dark turn. 
Now, I don't think we take from this that he is walking around with poison dog treats, but he seems to be making it out to be that he wanted her to think that, and that he wanted her to think that he was going to do something to harm her dog, and that is what triggered this video. But when the video uh, goes with the narrative that was posted by the tweet that went viral, all that happened was he had said, hey, ma'am, would you put a leash on that dog, please? And then she says, I'm going to call the cops. There's a black man threatening me. I want you to come and, and take care of him. When there was some stuff that was left out there that even Christian Cooper himself acknowledges happened. So, so right there you have a, a story that is different from the one that's emerging. Now, at the same time, I don't know, because we see her getting over agitated in the video and increasingly agitated. For all I know, the guy is making faces, taunting her. For all I know, he's doing nothing. I don't know and I don't care. Because even before I saw his Facebook post that made the situation a bit more complex than I thought it was from the video, I felt so terrible for this woman, even if she was in the wrong. And even if we were to say she's 100% in the wrong, because... I have been through the social media mobbing before, and I can tell you that regardless of your sins, no one deserves the disproportionate response that is being unleashed on this woman, has been unleashed on countless other people before. It just doesn't line up, and it doesn't make anyone's lives better. It only destroys lives. So this woman probably had a six-figure job, living in New York City, has a dog. All of that's gone now. She's lost the job. She even lost the dog, by the way. She turned it back to the, the shelter from which she rescued it because everyone was accusing her of being a, a bad dog mother because she choked the dog on the video. Well, the fact is she was trying to keep the dog close to her. And the whole point of that is that it makes sense when you see the Facebook post from Christian Cooper that suggests he was uh, threatening the dog or, or at least goading the dog. So that's why she wanted to keep it. And the dog, of course, get seeing the tension of the situations, trying to get away. And yeah, the dog ends up getting choked. So it looks not pretty, and I get that. But now she's lost the dog. She's lost the job. She thankfully has a common enough name, Amy Cooper, because she'll be Googleable for the end of time as Central Park Karen the Racist, rather than a woman who has any other accomplishments in her life, where she's a 40-something woman in New York City, has risen through the ranks. She's a vice president, or was. So this is a woman who has had immense accomplishments that are all going to be wiped out, at least for the foreseeable future because she had a bad day. So I don't buy into the fact that we should define people by the very worst characteristics they embody or by a two-dimensional or one-dimensional caricature of themselves that might not, might not even be reflective of real traits they have because all of us are flawed. All of us are flawed. And the fact that society now has this knee-jerk reaction to any situation where instead of having an honest-to-goodness human conversation with someone or maybe even accepting, you know what, you don't like me, I don't like you, we're going to go our separate ways, the only response that people have is phone in the face phone in the face. That's the only way we need to do it. No one talks to the restaurant manager anymore. They go home and just write a bad Yelp review. No one uh, brings something to the attention of the supervisor on duty. They just try and trash them online. No one works out their differences now. People just want to get everyone else to start adding gasoline to a fire because it's all about the competition for likes more than it's about actually working through any of these differences that exist. So here's a guy who is bird watching, by all accounts, minding his own business. Here's a woman that it sounds like at the very least was breaking the rule about leashing her dog. 
All right. That is a pretty minor infraction, not leashing your dog when you're supposed to. And in most cases, I'd say it wouldn't impact anyone else, except today was a bit different. All right, fine. So he could have just been the bigger man and said, walking, I'm going to walk away. She could have been the bigger woman and said, you're right. You know, normally there's no one around here, so I don't care. But you're here. You're bringing it to my attention. I'm going to leash the dog. That would have been the responsible, mature way for this to go. But no, it didn't happen. He escalated, she escalated, he escalated some more, she escalated some more. And when people get into those situations, they stop thinking rationally. They do. And, and you can tell there's a point in the video where she no longer seems to be in control. And that's the reality. And unfortunately, people go through that. And in her case, instead of just going through it and then at the end being like, wow, I really wish I handled that differently. It's now permanently encapsulated in the minds and uh, in the Internet until the rest of time. And the fact that people are cheering this. The fact that people are cheering this is the most sickening part of the social media mob because no one actually wants the proportionate response. No one says, no one wants her to be able to say, you know what, I made a mistake, Mr. Cooper, I'm sorry, and they move on. They wanted her suspended. And when she was suspended, they wanted her fired. And now that she's fired, they want her to never work again. And if anyone, anyone in the world ever decides they're going to hire her, there are going to be people that are going to leap into gear and go full throttle and say, you should not hire this woman don't you know about this that is what happens here that is the cycle it is not just about a slap on the wrist to punish you for whatever you did that might have been wrong it is trying to destroy your life and if you think i'm exaggerating just look around Look around at all the people that have gone through this. It's not just Amy Cooper. Before her, it was Justine Sacco. Before, uh, I mean, she was the big one, the woman who, uh, you know, cracked a couple of jokes on Twitter on a, a flight to South Africa. And by the time she landed, her, her life was destroyed. Now, Justine Sacco has thankfully rebuilt a lot of that. She's got a job working in PR again, but it took a lot of time to get there. And a lot of people don't have that opportunity to jump back into it. Uh, you look at the, the Des Moines Register case, this guy who was raising a lot of money for charity, working with, I think it was Anheuser-Busch, and then what happens is someone finds that when he was a teenager, he made a tweet that was offensive, and then all of a sudden, all the good that he's done is wiped out. The reporter who unearthed it <laughs> had made his own offensive tweet. So then the reporter who unearthed this was canceled as well. And th that, that was probably the most uh, apt analysis of what can happen here because it proves that eventually there's no one left standing. There's no one left standing at the end of it. So the, the person who is supposedly the savior of all this, uh, who's showcasing everyone else's wrongdoing, they're typically not able to uh, live by the rules that they're setting out for others. So I have no interest in destroying the lives of Christian Cooper or his sister Melody Cooper. I have no, uh, no interest in going back through their tweets and seeing if uh, they posted something that uh, is making them worthy of cancellation. But I, I do think that even if in, the, in that first moment, that first moment, Christian Cooper, who wanted to birdwatch, was in the right by saying to Amy Cooper, you've got to leash your dog, the fact that these two have now tried to not just get the situation resolved. It's never about that. It's about punishing the people involved. And that's the problem. And, that, and that's where correcting something becomes mobbing, when it isn't actually about that imminent thing. So let's say you have an issue at a store and, you know, you think the store owes you a refund. The corrective approach is get the refund. The punitive approach 
which is where the social media mob takes things, is get the store to declare bankruptcy, make sure no one shops there ever again, get corporate to come down and take the franchise, get the owner to never be able to own something else again. And the fact that the mob continues this way is, I think, important, that there, there's no measured response. It's not like the criminal code says, you know, this is the crime, this is the penalty, this is the crime, this is the punishment. No, it's about maximum damage, maximum damage, no matter the cost, no matter the collateral damage, and no matter how many other people are involved with it. And who wins? Who wins at the end of this? So so all, all of the people that were a part of this, that were lobbing uh, grenades at Amy Cooper, how are they better off? They just move on to the next thing. I mean, sure, Christian Cooper might be able to say, oh, you know what, he's been vindicated because everyone agreed with him. But you know, if, if it was actually just about the collateral, or not the collateral, it was actually just about that imminent short-term issue, he filmed fine. That gives him a bit of an insurance policy. If the police do come and they say, well, this woman said that you were threatening her life, and he says, well, I actually have this video, I was going nowhere near her, great. But why does it need to be posted publicly? And this is not just about this case, by the way, but, but right now you have to point out that this woman has found herself in the middle of a culture war that, knowing nothing about her, she may or may not have had anything to do with in her life up until this point. Because now she's, she's you know, a, a symbol of the race relations problem in the United States. People are comparing her to the woman who had Emmett Till lynched. People are comparing her to the men who killed uh, Ahmed Arbery and I think it was South Carolina a couple of weeks ago. Again, a, a case that reveals serious problems, but there's a, a proper process for these things. And there's there are channels you have to go through if you want real results. And that's not what's happening right now. So for starters, yes, this case is not as simple as it is made out to be. I, I'm not convinced that Christian Cooper is as lily uh, clean as he may think he is because of his own admission that he was threatening the dog. But the other side of that is that even if it was, even if this woman was wrong and this woman was entirely uh, off base and offside and, and didn't do anything right, is what she's going through worth it? Does she deserve this? Does anyone deserve this? for reacting in a moment in a way that is not appropriate. And if you think that, my goodness, how wonderful it must be to be as perfect as you. And there are lots of people like this, by the way, that say, oh, well, you know, if she doesn't like it, she shouldn't have done X. As though everyone is in control of themselves 100% of the time, as though no one errs, no one messes up, no one makes these mistakes, and, and that we are all supposed to, from our little keyboards, look at the world around us and say, oh, well, you know, that was wrong, and I can say that because I'm here on this side of the computer, and it's a one-way street. You know how in criminal justice you have the right to face your accuser? Yeah, it doesn't work that way when you've got a million anonymous keyboard trolls who uh, remain uh, able to go through their lives and one person whose entire life is under scrutiny right now. Global News did a story about her where they had like reached out for comment about whether she's a Canadian citizen. So now her life is being uprooted. She'll, she's never going to get it back. And, and even when she, by the way, pointed out that her life was being ruined in an interview, and I mean, power to her for trying to nip this in the bud, uh, the, the headline in one particular case from the, the UK Sun, Amy Cooper whines her life is being destroyed. So the idea that she's now become a part of this Karen meme, I, I mean, may seem like a punchline to a lot of people, but it goes beyond the Karen part of this. I mean, Central Park Karen, fine, maybe a fun meme, but this is not staying on the internet. 
This is not staying on the internet. We're talking about someone who is a human being, flawed or not, in the wrong or not, is now going to suffer for a much longer period of time than most people in the world have suffered for their mistakes and have paid for their mistakes. And think of the the worst things you've ever done, the most embarrassing things you've ever done, and I bet you're pretty grateful there was no one with a cell phone camera in your face in those moments. And my goodness, people need to have a lot more perspective than they do on these sorts of things. And I, I stress the point that I made earlier that no one is left standing at the end of this. Back in a moment with more of The Andrew Lawton Show. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. Welcome back to The Andrew Lawton Show. I said I wasn't going to be talking about COVID-19. I didn't mean it at all. I I just meant I wasn't going to be making it the focal point of the show because I I have to jump on this story from the Jerusalem Post, which part of me finds to be baffling. And then the other part of me was said, yeah, maybe it's not all that surprising after all. One in five English people believe coronavirus is a Jewish conspiracy, according to a survey The story points that it's a University of Oxford survey. One in five Brits think that uh, Jews created COVID-19 to collapse the economy for financial gain. So it's like they have a very specific reason for thinking it. It's not just a Jewish conspiracy. It's that, you know, Jewish conspiracy to uh, reap profits from it all. The finding came as part of a wider survey, the story says, in attitudes towards the virus and the measures taken to prevent it. Uh, They found that there was an undercurrent of mistrust over official advice on the virus within the public. Uh, But increasingly, the conspiracy beliefs forming have become greater. And this is weird because I've gotten a few conspiracy theories throughout this. Uh, The one that we talked about a couple of months back was that Trudeau was under house arrest. And that's why he was doing his briefings from Rideau Cottage because he had an ankle bracelet. Uh, The other conspiracy that I got was that uh, somehow 5G networks were involved in uh, coronavirus. And this one I find weird because like 5G uh, with Huawei is problematic for reasons to do with Huawei. We don't need to add a different layer to it. It can just be bad on its own. So I don't feel that we need to have convergence. And then now we have the (laughs) the story that uh, the Jews are behind COVID-19. But interestingly enough, this is not a a radically new belief system. I, I said a couple of weeks back that the Iranian I Ayatollahs were pushing this. Iran was saying that the Jews were behind COVID-19. And I don't know if it's behind the virus itself or just making it seem like the virus is a threat. I I don't know how uh, sinister we're supposed to believe that the uh, Zionist virus unleashers are here. Uh, But but Iran is now peddling this uh, dangerously anti-Semitic misinformation to such a point that 20% of people in England are buying into it. So and and I don't know, by the way, if I'd be interested in seeing the survey here. If it was multiple choice and they were like being given this option by the Oxford researchers or if the people volunteered it themselves, like like I, this is actually a really important question that I haven't been able to find the answer to. Are, are the Oxford researchers saying, so, you know, tell us uh, what you think about it. And someone says, well, you know, I think the Jews are behind it. Or are they giving them the option? Because that tends to skew things. It's like, OK, do you believe COVID-19 is the responsibility of, uh, you know, 5G of America of ISIS, of Jews. Yes, okay, we'll check off the Jews then. Right. So so that's the thing. Is like Because some people, I'm sure, are just having a bit of a lark. They're at home and a researcher calls them and they're bored because they've been in lockdown for two months. And, and that's certainly one possibility is they say, oh, yeah, yeah, we'll go, we'll go with that one. But, uh, you know, if it is real and, and if it, it is verifiable, the, these, these uh, da- data 
It's actually very dangerous because the rise of anti-Semitism in Europe has, has been responsible for monumental issues. Uh, you look at the fact that Jeremy Corbyn, for example, who was the, the former Labour leader, was a, a fairly unrepentant... Uh, I'll say anti-Semite. I mean, he was a, he was an anti-Semite. He is an anti-Semite, or at the very least, he's comfortable uh, running a party at the time that was of anti-Semites. And and Labour since Corbyn has had to uh, really hone this in a bit. And the and the 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 replacement had actually issued an apology on behalf of Labour to the Jewish people and said, "Listen, I mean, we need to do better here." But in mainstream UK you have a lot of anti-Semitism and anti-Semitic beliefs. And, and this lets a lot of these anti-Semitic tropes and, and punchlines really prosper. And and I don't know the, the reason for it. I, I think that, you know, immigration is part of it. You have, I mean, as part of the EU, you've got people from parts of the world where anti-Jewish conspiracy theories are pretty common that are, you know, loading up uh, in, in England and the population dynamics change. Uh, but you also have the fact that there seems to be this social acceptability to be an anti-Semite that isn't there for uh, attacks on other groups. And this is so horrific because Holocaust indifference is becoming a big issue. And as a result, Holocaust denial is becoming a big issue. And I, I spent a lot of time on, on two separate occasions at Yad Vashem, which is the uh, the Israeli uh, Holocaust Center. It's a, a campus, a museum. It, it does a lot of amazing work. And the one thing that, that was challenging is that they're finding that a lot of young, even Jews, young Jewish teenagers, are just so tired of hearing of the Holocaust. They're like, yeah, I know it's terrible, I don't really care. But there isn't that that um, identity that is shared with it, like there used to be, where people said, yeah, you know, it's important for us to survive and thrive as people because we had this thing two generations away. Well, now the Holocaust is three generations away. There are fewer people that have that first-hand knowledge and experience with it to share with their families. So as a result, uh, the younger generation of Jewish people, there are a lot of issues in getting them to care about it, and as a result, getting them to care about anti-Semitism, realizing what happens when you allow anti-Semitism on a mass scale to spread. So I, I can laugh at this in a way, but at the same time, there, there's a very serious uh, undertone and undercurrent to this that needs to be pushed back against. Now, we're going to be talking about, uh, we're talking with Jonathan Van Maren uh, about a really interesting story that is, again, a, a case of two sides and perhaps a truth in the middle there, but not letting the narrative that you read first being the one that you hold to. Uh, but also, I want to just mention very briefly, as everyone finds their way to cope with being in lockdown, there is a guy who has been getting YouTube famous, which is uh, real fame or not, I don't know, but YouTube famous doing Sudoku puzzles online. He's become a, a YouTube sensation. His name is Simon Anthony. He quit his job at an investment bank to start doing Sudokus on YouTube, and now his stuff has, uh, you know, just gone absolutely viral. He did one Sudoku called the Miracle Sudoku, where he started with only two numbers, uh, a one in that little box there you can see on the left, and a two in the box on the right. Thought it was ridiculous, but after 25 minutes, and I, I don't know if it was like, a, if it's 25 minutes or if that was an abridged version, but after 25 minutes, he was able to do it. So, uh, so, so good on him. And and for me, like, I thought the whole point of Sudoku is that you could just do it yourself. I, I didn't realize that it was a spectator sport, but I guess people are so bored with themselves that they'll watch other people doing things uh, rather than doing them themselves. We've got to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll talk to Jonathan Van Meeren here on The Andrew Lawton Show. Stay tuned. 
You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. Welcome back to The Andrew Lawton Show. Well, Jane Roe is probably the most famous name attached to abortion rights in the United States and around the world. And Jane Roe's real name, Norma McCorvey, became probably one of the most uh, well-known pro-life voices in America for the last several decades. And now a, a documentary is trying to put forward a different view that Norma McCorvey, a.k.a. Jane Roe, was actually just making a financial calculation. She was just saying pro-life talking points for money and that she wasn't actually that. And, and this is something that, of course, has uh, been jumped on by a lot of activists to say that the pro-life movement's a fraud, the religious rights a fraud. But it doesn't seem like the documentary is actually something that can necessarily be taken at face value. I, I want to play a clip from this FX documentary, Deathbed Confession Highlight, of Norma McCorvey, a.k.a. Jane Roe. Did they use you as a trophy? Of course. I was the big fish. I was the big fish. Do you think they would say that you used them? Well, I think it was a mutual thing. You know, I took their money and they put me out in front of the cameras and told me what to say. And that's what I'd say. Wow. <laughs> I took their money and they put me out in front of the cameras and told me what to say. That's what I'd say. Wow. Wow. Give me an example of what you'd say. We've gathered here today to pay homage to the children that are being aborted in this abortuary. We're doing this because Abortion is wrong. And I, as the former Jane Roe of Roe versus Wade, do regret signing the affidavit for the pro-abortion camps. And that was probably about it. It was all an act. Yeah. I did it well, too. I am a good actress. Of course, I'm not acting now. So she says there she's a good actress, but she's not acting now when she says that this was all essentially just a, a big sham. Jonathan Van Maren, pro-life activist, author, publisher, and editor of The Bridgehead, has said that the documentary is painting a picture that isn't necessarily accurate. People that were very close to Norma McCorvey right up until her last day alive, she passed away in 2017, uh, tell a very different story, and their voices are not included in the documentary. He's written two p great pieces on this, one in Christian Christianity Today and another in the American Conservative, both tackling different aspects of this. Jonathan, good to have you back on the show. Thanks for coming on today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Andrew. So let's start first off with Norma McCorvey's role in the pro-life movement, because Jane Roe, Roe v. Wade, still years after the decision, is really a, just a cornerstone of the American political discussion. How big a, a player was she in the pro-life movement after her conversion to Christianity and after she, uh, so to speak, flipped sides to being pro-life? Well, she was, she was I, think, I think one of the reasons her story is so potent is that she was a symbol. So she came out actually in, in 1994 and wrote a book uh, called I Am Roe. And that book detailed her role in the Roe v. Wade case, which, as most of your listeners and viewers will know, got passed down on January 22, 1973. And at this point, when this book got published, she and her then-lesbian partner, Connie Gonzalez, 
were actually working at an abortion clinic. And Operation Rescue moved next door to the abortion clinic. And the head of Operation Rescue at the time was a man named Flip Benham. He was a pastor, a former alcoholic. And he befriended her while she was on her smoke breaks. And eventually, throughout those conversations, she became pro-life. She came over to his side of the question. And then the big famous switch was when she was baptized in his backyard pool. And, and, and that baptism was broadcast for national television. And only three years after her book, I Am Row, she wrote a second book called One by Love, which was sort of the addendum to her original memoir about how Jane Roe had switched sides. And, and so she was very well known. I remember as, as a kid reading her book and Norma McCorvey was Jane Roe to a lot of pro-life people because Roe v. Wade is still the decision driving almost all of American politics. You could make the case that Roe v. Wade is the reason Donald Trump got elected. When you look at those final few moments that she had alive, one of the conversations she had was with a, a spiritual mentor and a friend of hers who, in your view and in your telling in your columns here, said that she was still the same person she always was. There was no flip back to being pro-choice, if you will. Well, so the interesting thing, I think, about the AKA Jane Rowe is I was suspicious right away when the trailer got released simply because none of her close friends were interviewed in this documentary. So if you've got, you're a journalist, Andrew, so you know this, when you're really trying to uncover a full story and all of its complexities, you talk to all the different people that somebody knows to try and get a real sense of who they were and what their mindset was. And, and they call the documentary her deathbed confession. It's sort of this throwaway line she gives with a chuckle. Uh, you saw that in the trailer there. Um, but it actually wasn't her deathbed confession because the people who were there at her actual deathbed, tell a different story. She told uh, Janet Morano of, of Priests for Life hours before she died that she wanted Janet to continue to fight for the overturn of Roe v. Wade. Father Frank Pavone of Priests for Life, who was her spiritual advisor, spoke to her hours before she passed away. Karen Garnett, who was her friend for 22 years, spoke with her as well uh, just a couple of hours before she passed away. I think the uh, producer, Nick Sweeney, who did the interviews with her, I think the big coup that he pulled off was getting the entire mainstream media to run with the whole she got paid to change her mind line long before the documentary came out. Because that narrative is sort of solidified, even though when you watch the documentary, which I did on Friday night, she never at any point actually says that she was she was paid to change her mind. And, and any any idiot knows that there's a big difference between being paid to change your mind and being paid to advocate for a specific position, which she absolutely was. You've gotten paid to do speaking. I've gotten paid to do speaking. It's called an honorarium. And surely Nick Sweeney knew this. He just wanted the line to be Jane Roe got paid to become pro-life. Therefore, the pro-life movement's a sham. Is there not still some truth to the idea that even if she was getting paid for a speaking fee, which is a, a pretty common practice in the pro-life community and in other political movements, that being pro-life mm -hmm. still a afforded her a lifestyle and, and that there still may have been a, a financial motivation to jumping into it as fervently as she did? Well, so that's sort of the interesting thing. Not really. Um, if you look at what their evidence was, when they said like they, that he had found all of these um, documents that proven she'd gotten paid off, right? The number that was quoted in the Daily Beast and the LA Times was roughly $430,000 over 20, 21, 22 years. Um, when, when, by know, the way, I over that period of time is not a huge sum of money. Well, I was, so that, 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 that's roughly 20 grand a year. Uh, I know, I know pro-life speakers who make that much in, in, in a single speech. 
So this is a very small amount of money to anybody familiar with the landscape of the movement we're talking about. And the other thing that gets left out is this this money was paid to her ministry, Row No More Ministries. They were, they were donations to a ministry that she ran, and those donations were actually made to that ministry so that she could stay in Texas because she didn't like traveling. She didn't like speaking very much. Uh, and so it's the whole idea that she was paid was I, I was relieved when I saw the documentary. I was like, what does, does this does this guy have evidence that that people were bribing her to hold her position? Or you just never know what what sort of bombshell is going to come out. Um, all of her friends, uh, I got a, a few more interviews coming out uh, this week, said she was she was very volatile. So who knows what she would have said? She got paid to show up in, the, in this documentary, ironically, while he's accusing the pro life movement of paying her off. He paid her to show up in this film, aka Jane Roe. But the, the documents he shows in the documentary are 990 forms for a pro-life ministry, right? I work for a pro-life organization. It's not a very big amount of money. And if we're going to start calling donations to a pro-life nonprofit bribing, then we're all, anybody who works for a pro-life organization is being bribed to hold that position. So it, like all of that was just a, a total nothing burger. She wasn't paid very much. She wasn't paid very often. And, and what she got paid was, ve- was very low uh, compared to what other pro-life speakers get. Uh, the final point I'll make on that is, can you imagine what documentary they would have made if they said uh, the pro-life movement exploited Norma McCorvey because they... They had her give all of these speeches and they didn't even give her an honorarium, right? This was a, this was a, he, he was going to have a narrative that she got exploited regardless of whether she got paid or she didn't get paid. That, that whole, that whole side of things is kind of a joke once you see the film. So I know it's a bit of a, an unrelated point here, but I, I think that one of the bigger problems that I have is that a lot of people tend to take documentaries as being gospel and complete, you know, nonfiction without any bias, without any uh, ulterior motives. And we know that's not the case. You know, like Tiger King tells us, you know, people just put characters in and form a narrative that's going to make for a good story. And in this case, there, there's clearly an agenda there. But at the same time, whatever the bias of the documentarian is, the bias of the producer, the bias of the mainstream media, she still said those words that you know it was all an act that she's a good actress that she's not acting now so how do you reconcile what these friends of hers that you've talked to have said with her saying pretty clearly in her own words whatever led to that point that yeah she was acting but she's not now well, it's, it's so funny that you, you put it that way when you said in her own words. When you watch the documentary, they're having a discussion about how she got paid to say stuff for the camera. So she had this like stump speech like many speakers do. And of course, hers was, I was Roe, I am Roe no more. That was sort of her stump speech. And she was talking about um, how how they would put her out in front of the cameras and she'd get paid to speak. And then the, document, uh, the documentary filmmaker actually asks her, would it be fair to say it was all an act? And she says yes in reference to her speaking in front of the cameras. I know, I know pro-life speakers who have been getting the same speech for 20 years, right? They're not speaking with the same passion infused in their voice. It's all Dale Carnegie at, at that point. And it's interesting that, um, that 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 was in her own words. Those words were literally put into her mouth. Is it fair to say it was all an act? And then she said, yes, um, I, I'm a great, a great actress, but I'm not acting now and then kind of laughs there's a bunch of instances in which these quotes are sort of pulled out of context so she wasn't saying i faked my conversion i've been acting all this time she said i I was acting when i was in front of the cameras which 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 many people are but there's a quote towards the end of the film as well where they they play a clip from from a a former pro-life activist turned pro-choicer rob shank um where he says you know i think that we kind of used her um rob shank's former friends say he speaks only for himself um, and then they put a quote from Norma right in the middle where she says, these, these guys are all assholes. Um, and they think, you know, God sent them to save the world. 
but you're not actually told who she's referring to. You're not actually told what the question is. So you don't even know which people she thinks are assholes because, yeah, she, she, there, there were people in the pro-life movement that she absolutely thought were terrible. There were people that she really couldn't stand. And then there were the people that she wanted to speak with hours before she passed. So all of the major quotes are kind of presented almost totally without context. At the end of the documentary, for example, she's shown um, hating Donald Trump um, and saying she hopes Hillary wins. I talked to several of her friends and none of them are surprised. They said, look, a lot of pro-lifers are ambivalent about Trump. And, and a lot of people said he's the kind of guy who gets women abortions. Um, I, I wrote that as I, I wrote that in 2016 prior to the election. Um, even the quote where they say, um, um, where she says, and, and pardon my language, you can bleep me if you need to, but just quote directly that if a woman has an abortion, you know, it's no skin off my ass. You're not given any context. Uh, you, you don't know what the question was asked. And one of the reasons that makes me suspicious as to what the question was, because uh, she could just be describing uh, what is simply true. Like, look, I've got two kids. Um, why do I care about this issue? It's it's not going to be my kids who are aborted. It's other people's. Why am I still passionate about this issue, right? Is the fact that he didn't give you the questions and you didn't give the context. If there was more there there, it would have shown up in the film. But I, I really do think his biggest coup was getting three or four quotes uh, to define the narrative of the whole film, when in a two-hour film, there's maybe 15 minutes of new material. Most of it's just old interviews and old footage. Yeah, that's actually a really interesting point. And the one thing I would also add to that is that it, it's telling that sometimes you see the question and other times you don't. And there's always, I think, a question that a viewer has to inject into that, which is why are you not showing us in this particular case? Why are you showing us a, a short response, whereas at this other point you showed us a longer response? And and that's where that, that grain of salt or, you know, 10-gallon barrels of salt uh, need to be uh, deployed here. I guess what I would ask is what her motivation would have been for participating in this? Because you've said right. that she wasn't a fan of of this, the traveling and the speaking and, and whatnot. So why, if she was in her, her dying years, would she go down this road regardless of whether or not she knew the agenda of the film or the documentary? Well, so, so there's a couple of answers to that question, and I'll give you a little bit of a scoop here in, in a minute. Um, so one, it, she, she did all, all sorts of, of media requests, and she usually asked for money in exchange, especially towards the end of her life. Despite the claims of massive bribes, she didn't have a whole lot of money, and she was taken in uh, for, for over a year by a, a kindly pro-life lady in Dallas when she just needed a place to stay. Um, she texted back and forth with Father Frank Bavone. Um, who released those text messages when Nick Sweeney showed up and she was doing the documentary where she said, I'm doing some interviews for a documentary, hoping to make a few bucks. She actually said that she was doing it for money. Um, what hasn't been reported on yet, and I got this from her friend Karen Garnett, who was quoted in both of the articles that I wrote that you referred to, uh, she mentioned that by the time Nick Sweeney showed up on the scene, she'd been in and out of the hospital already 11 times. She was in extremely poor health, and the doctor told her her lungs uh, were black and hardened, that she could not smoke cigarettes or it could kill her. She was already on oxygen at this point. And uh, what Karen Garnett told me in an on-the-record interview is that uh, Nick Sweeney would take her out and give her cigarettes. Um, she was dying for a smoke. She, she would be messaging her friends, like, can you at least get me an electronic cigarette? She was a lifelong heavy smoker from a very young age. And this producer was giving her cigarettes, even though the doctor said it could kill her. Um, so he, she said she wanted to make some, some bucks. So I, I don't know what the amount that exchanged hands was, but that's one motivation Two, She says almost in the first uh, 50 minutes of the documentary, she said, I, I really like attention. I'm good at getting it. Right. So that's that, well, that was another motivation for wanting to do the documentary. Um, 
And he obviously had an agenda. The first thing I did when I found out about this film coming out is I Googled to find out what his previous film projects had been. Uh, one of them was Transgender Kid Camp. The other one was Born in the Wrong Body. Um, another one was on Sex Dolls. Um, and then there was a third one, I believe, also on, on, on an LGBT-related issue. Um, so he was obviously coming to this with, 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 with a motivation right off the bat. And, and also, it's, it's just, again, important to recognize the context of when he showed up. Now, just as an addendum, there, she does have a biographer, Josh Prager, who's been working on a, on a book on her for ages and did say that she was very conflicted about some things towards the end of her life. She did feel that there were some pro-lifers who exploited her, which two of her friends told me as well, and I quote them in my Christianity Today article. Um, but he said that she did say some interesting things that she struggled with um, about the abortion issue. That will come out in his book in 2021. Um, but if there is a bombshell there, if there were some things she struggled with, uh, Nick Sweeney didn't get it, and it didn't show up in the documentary. So if there was, if, if there is a real scoop about something that she thought towards the end of her life that she shared with nobody, uh, Josh Prager got that story, and, and we'll be learning about that next year. Nick Sweeney didn't get it. The documentary was really a well-edited nothing burger. Let me ask you about her reliability as a spokesperson, because this was actually a point that came out in the documentary about how she wasn't the perfect spokesperson for the pro-choice movement. She didn't have all of the checkboxes they would have loved to have had. And I'd say the same is probably true on the pro-life side. I mean, yes. had she not been Jane Roe, I don't mm -hmm. think there would have been much of a role that she could have played. Now, now admittedly, that's a big if, but but if right. she hadn't been, I mean, that that was her role, is that chapter of her life where she was Jane Roe. And it, it doesn't sound like she didn't go through, and you acknowledged this, her life without a lot of struggles right up until the end. Yeah. Well, so just to give you a little bit of context, right, by the age of 22, she had been sexually abused by a relative. She'd been beaten by her husband and then divorced. She married him at the age of 16. She'd been pregnant on a wedlock three times. She was also, she'd also done a five-year stint in reform school in Texas where she had also been sexually abused. By age 22, she was a deeply hurting um, and a deeply broken person in many ways. Uh, people like that generally don't make reliable spokespeople. And in fact, the reason the pro-choice movement didn't want her as a spokesperson, this is where you can't really blame them, is that one of her one of her major interviews that got arranged, she admitted that she lied when she said the pregnancy that formed the basis of the Roe case was through rape. Um, and they felt that confirmed that she was very volatile, that it made them look like um, like they'd been lying all along when they claimed that they hadn't been lying. That's the story Norma McCorvey had told them. It's interesting you bring up her reliability because uh, it, it, three separate people without having communicated with each other that I interviewed um, back to back all said the biggest uh, the, the biggest reason, you know, that Rob Shank uh, on this film in this film, uh, he was the former pro-life fellow, was full of it. And that the narrative was wrong is that you couldn't coach Norma McCorvey to say anything. Um, they actually said it while laughing. They said, you know what, if we could have coached her to say certain things and to stick to her stump speech, we would have. But when you invited Norma McCorvey to show up and you handed her a mic, she was going to say what Norma felt like saying. When she went on TV, she was going to say exactly what she felt like saying. And to give you a prime example, one of the first times she went on, on TV after her, her pro-life conversion, she hadn't really thought all the details through yet. They asked her if she was okay with abortion in the case of rape, and she said she was. She didn't even fully understand the, the pro-life position at that point. She was just expressing what she had to say. So if she was this sort of groomed and coached speaker, uh, she would not have been going on TV and saying, actually, I support abortion in these, in these particular circumstances. So um, they, her friends were pretty upfront and basically said, like, look, if we could have coached her, we would have, but nobody could coach Norma. Norma was Norma, and, and you took what you could get. She liked to have drinks. She smoked like a chimney. 
Uh, and everybody said that her sense of humor was just uproarious, but also extremely irreverent. She really did not fit the mold of, you know, a Christian inspirational speaker. You know, the, the type that I'm talking about, right? They're sort of squeaky clean. Yeah. They have no pictures on Facebook of them having a beer. That was not Norma McCorvey. She was who she was, take it or leave it. And the pro-life movement left it. And, and the pro-life movement loved her for who she was. You know, I'm assuming the timing of this is to coincide with the upcoming election, cast conservatives and the religious right and the pro-life movement in a bad light. But the fact is, we're talking about three and a half years after this woman passed away. No ability for her to respond to it. And, and that's almost by design, you can tell. Well, it's 100% by design. Like, look, it's no it, it's no accident that FX Hulu is the one that released this documentary. Um, some of your viewers might know this, but they also recently released an ongoing miniseries called Mrs. America on Phyllis Schlafly, who was also a pro-life activist who took on the, the Equal Rights Amendment and won. Um, and, and the things they say about her are just, just horrifying and things that they could not say if she was still alive. Um, like Phyllis would have sued them into the ground if they said this while she was alive, but now she's been gone for two years and, and now they can sort of say whatever they want. Um, I, I think that one of the political ramifications that's very interesting here is that in, uh, in, in the mid 2000s, um, uh, Norma McCorvey actually sued to have Roe v. Wade overturned based on new evidence that abortion hurts women. Uh, evidence in her deposition in her Supreme Court uh, filing is actually being used right now in another pro-life case that's winding its way up to the Supreme Court. So there is some suspicion that this documentary, if you can undermine Norma McCorvey's sincerity, uh, then you can undermine the evidence that st is still currently in play in a very important pro-life case, the same way that FX Hulu released a series trying to claim all sorts of horrifying things about Phyllis Schlafly, like she was a racist, uh, et cetera, et cetera, just as the Equal Rights Amendment is on, is on the Biden platform. Um, the issues that, that, that Jane Roe, Norma McCorvey, Phyllis Schlafly, the issues that they were involved in their lives revolved around are very much in play, in some cases back in play. And yeah, I, I think that these documentaries are getting this much traction because they're still considered to be politically relevant in the moment. It's not just a trip through, you know, the 1990s pro-life movement and all the craziness of Operation Rescue. No, it's, it, it, it's about the here and now in a big way. Jonathan Van Maren, author of The Culture War, publisher of The Bridgehead. Always a pleasure, sir. Thanks for coming on. Thanks a lot, Andrew. That does it for me for today. We'll be back next week with more of Canada's most irreverent talk show, The Andrew Lawton Show, here on True North. Thank you, God bless, and good day, Canada. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.